and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to Cradle Bay, to our new town that we're going to live in. We're going to head over to the yogurt shop and get some frozen yogurt with our new weird friends, the Blue Ribbons, and then also try not to get brainwashed by, like, uh, evil scientists. But anyway, regardless of all that, we're going to be covering today 1998's Disturbing Behavior. Now... Disturbing Behavior for me is a recent watch. I think I watched it for the first time last year, I think, in 2022, I guess. It always was on the the list because, you know me, I, I love me a good horror movie here and there, okay? I've covered, you know, The Faculty and, like, Urban Legend and, you know, things like that. So, like, of course, this is going to be on my, uh, my uh, docket, right? So, and I knew it had Katie Holmes in it, <laughs> and I knew it had James Marsden, Cyclops, you know, and, and I knew that much, I guess, but, like, I didn't really know exactly what it was about, so, like, I was like, all right, let me go into this. And when I watched it for the first time, I actually really liked it. Uh, I I didn't think it was a bad movie. I kind of heard, like, oh, this is, like, a failure, and, you know, all this stuff, and, and whatever, right? So I was like, but actually, you know, this is a pretty perfectly good movie like it's not terrible ultimately it is kind of flawed in a way but well we'll get into it you know i i actually liked it when i first saw it and i was like all right cool and then uh after the fact i found out all the information about how this movie like got cut to shit so badly that i mean i found out all the other information that came after it right and that's what really made this an interesting film to me where i was like oh wow wow, like, there's so much to the story behind this movie, kind of. And it's a prime example of just how horrible Hollywood and the film industry can be sometimes, you know, when it comes to cutting a movie. And, you know, this movie really, I think, it was such a different kind of film when they shot it. And then because of the cuts and the studio mandated things and whatever, it got turned into something that I think is a shell of what it was supposed to have been. So, but we'll get into that a little bit later in the pod. But, but yeah, I do think this is a perfectly good little horror movie and it was supposed to be, uh, you know, kind of like how Faculty is about kind of like an update to the Invasion of the Body Snatchers story. This was kind of like a Stepford Wives thing. I love me a good Stepford Wives movie. I love that 70s version. It's really good. This is kind of an update on that. But yeah, I'm interested to get into it today with this movie. But as we do normally on the show, we're going to move into some figures about the movie. We're going to go into the production history of a little bit of this what's going on with the movie um, and then we'll move into a plot summary as well so without further ado let's get on to those figures so disturbing behavior was released on july 24th 1998 and was directed by david nutter written by scott rosenberg and produced by armian bernstein and john shishtek we're looking at an estimated budget of 15 million dollars and a box office overall of 17 million five hundred and fourteen thousand nine hundred and eighty dollars we're looking at a 33% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes and a 39% audience score. We're looking at an IMDb score of 5.6 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 2.8 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have James Marsden as Steve Clark, Katie Holmes as Rachel Wagner, Nick Stahl as Gavin Strick, Bruce Greenwood as Dr. Edgar Caldecott, William Sadler as Dorian Newberry, Steve Railsback as Officer Cox, 
Chad Danella as UV, Tobias Meller as Andy Efkin, Tyg Runyon as Dickie Atkinson, Catherine Isabel as Lindsay Clark, Ethan Embry as Alan Clark, Terry David Mulligan as Nathan Clark, and Susan Hogan as Cynthia Clark, Peter LaCroix as Dan Strick, Linda Boyd as Lucille Strick, Jay Brazo as Principal Weathers, AJ Buckley as Charles Chug Roman, Crystal Cass as Lorna Longley, Derek Hamilton as Trent Whalen, David Patko as Tom Cox, Daniela Evangelista as Daniela, and Julie Patswald as Betty Caldecott. Some critical response quotes about disturbing behavior are as follows. We have Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times who states, Unlike Scream 2, which kids the horror cliches, disturbing behavior pretends they still hold power. But the movie is light on shocks and not ever scary. We then have Michael DeQuina from the moviereport.com who states, Marsden has blue eyes and clean-cut looks tailor-made for a bop pinup and all the emotional depth and acting range of the page it would be printed on. And then we have Paul Tatera from CNN.com, who states, Lots of shots are held for upwards of a minute, too. I know that's not much, but if you're ambitious enough to gain sustenance from something other than nice belly buttons, you take what you can get. So before we move into any kind of plot summary about disturbing behavior, I do just want to go over some of the production history of this movie and also especially the post-production and release of this movie. As I stated earlier, this has kind of a bit of a juicy story. So let's get on with it. So... This movie was an international production uh, between Australia, the United States, and Canada, because why else do you think Catherine Isabel's there? Obviously, it's Canadian, duh. But anyway, so Scott Rosenberg, who's the scriptwriter of this movie, his script for Disturbing Behavior was acquired by MGM in August of 1997, and Beacon Pictures uh, signed on to produce the movie. And then they found David Nutter, who at this point had done um, a movie called Ceasefire back in the 80s. He had done a couple TV shows. He did 21 Jump Street. He did uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the TV show. And he's had a pretty good career in TV. He's actually the guy, for any of you Game of Thrones fans, he's the guy who actually directed the Red Wedding scene. Um, So he actually won an Emmy for that. So that's kind of cool. So thankfully, this movie did not derail his career because it could have damn well almost have. They brought him on because they thought he would do a really good job with it. And he had been directing X-File episodes because at this point, um, X-Files, when it first started, was kind of shaky a little bit. And so um, they brought on David Nutter. He did really well with directing. And so, you know, he made a name for himself with doing that. And I think that's kind of why they brought him onto this project, kind of, for that very reason. So David Nutter brought in a bunch of different people, actually. Some folks he had worked with on X-Files and also Millennium. That's actually how Catherine Isabel's kind of in this movie because her dad is Graham Murray who was a production designer on X-Files and his daughter was trying to be an actress and so I uh, was able to get her a little part on this which is kind of cool. But even some of the other actors in this movie uh, had come from the X-Files or Millennium or whatever so they had already worked with David Nutter before but they did sign on um, James Marsden who at this point had only really done a couple of things before this um, so this was kind of a big deal for him he was still kind of on the rise in a way they brought him on then also a funny little story so they also brought on nick stall and chad Danella. chad Danella is a canadian as well he if you don't know he's uv so they had to put him in a bunch of makeup to make him look really pale and all this he is this guy who 
he's the guy Todd in Final Destination, if you don't already know that. Um, so he's the one who dies uh, in the bathtub. He gets hanged and all that. So, uh, But funny little story about casting. So I don't know who they were initially thinking of for Rachel's part, which ended up being Katie Holmes. But one of the things was that what had happened was they were auditioning the people from Dawson's Creek, apparently, because Dawson's Creek was, I guess, a Columbia show or whatever the hell. And so uh, they had these uh, people audition. So literally, I guess, James Vanderbeek, Michelle Williams, Joshua Jackson, and Katie Holmes auditioned for the roles. And I guess David Nutter was looking at um, dailies for Millennium or something, because it was also done in the same like um, production company type of thing, like same studio. And instead of looking at dailies for whatever, Millennium or the X-Files or whatever, he saw these dailies for Dawson's Creek because it was the same studio. And he saw, if you don't know what the dailies are, it literally is like the footage that you shot that day and that kind of thing. But anyways, it's like coverage and kind of. And so it's what you're shooting. So like he saw this scene with Katie Holmes and he thought she'd be great for the role of Rachel. And so as part of this, they already auditioned. They thought she did great so they brought her in for rachel a lot of the principal photography of this movie occurred from about january 1998 to late march in vancouver um so of course a lot of these folks probably on the um production were in some way um canadian probably and then also uh because you have to do that in canada but also they came from the x-files or millennium as well which i already kind of mentioned so this movie like literally got shot And it was initially actually supposed to be about 115 minutes. That was the director's cut that David Nutter made. And they screened the movie for the executives. The executives really liked it. They were like, oh, this is a great movie. It's kind of a, there's a lot of depth to it. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's a little bit like the Stepford Wives thing. You know, that's what they were kind of going for. Um, and it really feels kind of like a um, an atmospheric type of thing. You know, David Nutter said he envisioned the film as an atmospheric X-Files style thriller. Um, but like the studio wanted a Scream style teen movie, you know? And so we'll get into that a little bit. But, but he wanted it to be this. And And so what ended up happening is that the executives were like, all right, cool, we like it, but we're going to screen it for test audiences. And what's funny is that with the test audiences that they had, which was like 18 to 24 year olds, you know, the demographic, this movie is rated R technically. And so a lot of the people in the test audience really liked it. But there were a couple people who maybe didn't like a few things in there. And instead of going with, oh, I don't know, the majority and maybe going on and doing this movie the way it was supposed to be, no, they decided to cut it. So it underwent numerous studio-mandated recuts and a reshoot of the original ending um, due to these negative test screenings. So a lot of the cuts in this movie were to scenes that provided plot and character development. What are some of those that you may ask? Well, a lot of it was had to do with the parents in the town of Cradle Bay, where a lot of the stuff was cut out. There was a scene where Caldecott, the scientist behind the whole thing, earlier in the movie has a meeting with the parents and he talks at length about his daughter so that then later in the movie where we find out where Caldecott's daughter is, it makes a lot more of an impact. But guess what? They cut that part out of the movie. They also cut out parts with like, why did Steve's family move from Chicago to Cradle Bay? We end up finding out that, because we never really know what exactly happened to Alan, except apparently he he died of suicide. 
But we don't know that actually it was a murder-suicide, apparently. And so that's cut out. God, so many things. Just like these different parts that the other thing as well that was cut out was the whole idea of why is Cradle Bay like this? Because uh, Mr. Newberry, the janitor guy, he gives a whole backstory about literally what happened was that three years ago in this story, there were these kids that got drunk and drove and, you know, were speeding through the streets and ended up accidentally killing a mother and her son in a drunk driving accident. And apparently those teens also died. And so he even said, like, everyone died. And, you know, he even said, you know, now nobody, no teens don't go and, you know, drive drunk around Cradle Bray anymore. But now they also don't, you know, dance or sing or laugh or whatever. And so that's a huge plot point of what is it, how did Caldecott get the the power that he ended up getting to do what he does to these teens? But that whole story about the drunk driving accident, those kids and the parent, you know, and the son dying and all that stuff, completely cut out. Just nothing. We don't know why, you know? And it also gives a relationship between Mr. Newberry and Steve, because we see a deeper connection with them during that scene. A lot of these scenes also, some of them are on the Blu-ray as well. Um, I don't actually have the Blu-ray or DVD. I really should get it, though. But a lot of the stuff was cut out. So when you think about it, and I'll get into it in the plot summary, I guess, of what I'll be covering for the theatrical cut, because that's the only thing you can watch, really. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it just... These things cut out a bunch of shit. Like, I think apparently there was more scenes with um Lindsay's friend, you know? And we only have one scene with her in it. You know what I mean? It's it's crazy. And, oh, they also changed the ending as well. Um, That was another thing that they did. So, actually, MGM was having David Nutter do these cuts, but then Nutter was like, I can't keep doing this. So, then they hired another editor to uh, jo- uh George Falsey Jr. They hired him to do a bunch of cuts, but then he cut it down to like 72 minutes which was and it was horrible and so then they ended up getting it back to 84 minutes which is pretty much where it stands right now and they also changed the ending as well um so the original ending of this movie is supposed to have been that steve and rachel and i guess uv and Lindsay, they all end up on the ferry at the end and gavin is there with a gun and he's gonna shoot steve i guess because he doesn't want to keep being a blue ribbon but he doesn't know what else to be and all this stuff right and so then um he's gonna shoot steve but then what ends up happening is that uv actually shoots gavin and then Gavin dies. He ends up being himself for a little bit while he's dying. He's back to his old self and then he ends up dying. And so that happened and it was a very kind of dark ending. And so they, they didn't do that. And yeah, they decided to go without that. You can still see this ending on YouTube though. Uh, or I guess also probably on the Blu-ray. It's probably on there too. But anyway, so you could still see that. And so. These cuts were so bad and severe that Nutter really did consider taking his name off of this movie, but he did not do that. So it is still there. Um, he almost Lona William did for Sugar and Spice. Funny enough, I actually just watched Sugar and Spice because it was free on YouTube. 
And that also has James Marsden in it. And I kind of love him in that movie because he's such a lovable himbo. But, you know, I I love it. But yeah, it's just insane to me that like, you know, this movie, David Nutter got exactly the movie he wanted. So much so, you call it the nut cut is what it is, which I think is funny. But he got exactly the movie he wanted. And the fact that this movie got cut to shit so badly and now it really is just in its kind of 84 minute glory that is the theatrical cut or whatever it's just it's still a perfectly fine movie but it is it just jointed a little bit some of this stuff comes out of nowhere like one of the things is like i think steve's mom finds a gun um that he uh took steve took from gavin earlier and that was kind of why she called caldecott in you know near the end of the movie and so but that just comes out of nowhere and again that's because shit got cut so anyway it's crazy to me But again, you know, the fact that there is an actual director's cut of this movie that David Nutter actually has. And I think that, if I'm not mistaken, I think Scream Factory was actually trying to maybe see if they could could really release it. But I think MGM seems to be kind of the barrier, if you will, uh, to that happening, which is so crazy to me because I, I feel like there are plenty of people horror fans in particular who i think would actually pay money to watch the director's cut of this movie you know and and i just think like what is the problem like what and david nutter even showed this uh director's cut to fangoria magazine and even fangoria the people who watched it put in their magazine saying hey this actually like makes the movie a little bit better and this is actually a better cut of the film so like i i just feel like listen i um (laughs) I may or may not be doing a Blade Runner episode soon. Who knows? If Blade Runner can have a bunch of fucking cuts of the movie, and then we end up getting to this other cut of the movie, why can't you just release the fucking nut cut of Director uh, Certain Behavior? You know what I mean? I don't know. Whatever. It's just me. I did just want to mention, uh, so there was a retrospective of this film. Um, so a 2019 uh, review from Gizmodo noted that the film really wants uh, to offer a youthful new twist on some classic sci-fi themes and had the potential to be something more. And Cinesaps also states, in spite of all the hacking the studio inflicted upon disturbing behavior, many of the filmmakers' core themes of high school life in the late 90s managed to shine through. The film does indeed speak to teenage conformity, the pressures to fit in amongst peers, and to live up to parental expectations. And like I was saying earlier, I really do think that this film does kind of fit into those things, but it's just because the studio cut it really bad that like some of that stuff gets lost, uh, which is kind of unfortunate and you know i I just feel like this movie is um again it's not perfect it is ultimately flawed but i do think like would have been so interesting and also i'm not going to go into a whole stepford wives discussion today because who knows i could cover that movie on another episode i don't know um i do love the stepford wives a lot and i i like the fact that this is kind of an update to that because when i watch this movie and you watch the original stepford wives do not watch that 2004 remake it's so horrible but you know when i watch this i'm like yeah i see what they're going with that if they had influence to that i absolutely believe it like completely um and i just think like 
it's so interesting that the production history of this is kind of varied. You could definitely go down the rabbit hole. I would say definitely look into, if you want to find out more information about this, you know, there's definitely YouTube videos about it um, that you can kind of go down the rabbit hole with. Uh, one of the ones I like is our boy Cecil um, Trachtenberg from Good Bad Flicks. Uh, he did a whole video on this, whereas I got some of the information from that um, that I shared with on this podcast. And so he's a great guy and love him. I like that. I enjoy Cody Leach uh, from on YouTube. He has a nice little video because he actually kind of likes this movie. And he talks a little bit about that as well, which is kind of where I came uh, first aware of some of the background of this movie and, and what the fuck was going on with that. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think go check those guys out. And yeah, I just think like this movie has I think it ultimately kind of got what it wanted to in a way. But because of studio interference, I think that voice kind of got silenced a little bit more than I would have wanted. So now that we've kind of gone over the crazy production history, the crazy release history of this movie, um, and we all mourned the, uh, the death of the fact that we probably will never get a director's cut of this movie. Let's move on to a plot summary of the theatrical cut of disturbing behavior. So we open our movie with our uh, MGM opening and then we have our intro sequence where we have this like really fun opening theme music where it's like dun 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 yeah. And it's like really uh I love the opening theme to this movie. It's really good theme music. So we have it kind of going in and out of like, you know, all the different people who are in the movie and like who the people who are involved in it and everything like that. And I did put in my notes Lisa Beach, because Lisa Beach is the casting director on this movie. If you don't already know Lisa Beach, uh that's our girl from Cast and Scream, and she cast, I think, Jawbreaker and like a couple different things. Love us some Lisa Beach okay uh she cast all the teen movies in the day so love her so we come in on a car and in the night um who is uh with youths making out in it um so we have our one dude um who is andy efkin who i believe is played by tobias meller who would then go on to be uh i believe tommy ross in the 2002 version of carrie um and he's also canadian i believe they had him um playing andy he's one of the blue ribbons and um anyway so he and this chick are yeah uh, mary joe i believe her name is they are making out in this car kind of sort of because that's what you know kids do and so anyway they're doing that gavin played by nick stall he is walking his dog and he's also kind of being a, a bit of a creeper and watching them kind of kiss up in the car a little bit like they're on like over this lookout point type of place and then he's like on the uh like a hill or whatever he's kind of watching them a little bit but then the police come by i think this is sheriff cox or something like that but i think it's played by steve Railsback, if i'm not mistaken but anyway he comes by and because of guess because uh mary joe decides she's gonna go down on andy and this like uh makes andy's hormones and you know <laughs> all that go crazy he then ends up killing her by snapping her neck and he calls her a slut if i'm not mistaken so wonderful late 90s you know fucking misogyny but okay great so then actually this isn't sheriff cox i don't think it may not be because he ends up killing this cop is what happens with andy he ends up killing that cop but i think uh sheriff cox is there though where i guess like he ends up kind of covering up for the whole thing it seems like because it was kind of like 
this is where we start to get the thing of like something's wrong going on in uh, this little town here. Um, so that's what we have our little opening with. And again, Gavin saw all of this happen. So of course, this is just kind of um, with him has this whole thing of you know something's going on, and he saw this happen, and so it just kind of adds to what we then we'll find out later um, about what's exactly going on in this this town. And we are in the town of Cradle Bay, where we end up finding out. We are then on a ferry boat the next day, uh, where we are introduced to our main character of Steve, uh, played by James Marsden, and we see him and his sister Lindsay, played by baby Catherine Isabel. Uh, and so I put in my notes baby Catherine Isabel and James Marsden, because they are... Catherine Isabel, I think, is a literal teenager in this movie, if I'm not mistaken. And James Marsden, I mean, listen, I know he's supposed to be a high school student. None of these fucking people look like they're in high school, okay? So he looks like a literal 26-year-old, because I think he was. Anyway, so... But what we do... So on the ferry, we meet them, and we meet the family that's moving into Cradle Bay. And this is Steve and his family. So you have him, Lindsay, and then his mom and dad. And they are moving into the house. And so they get off of the ferry with their little U-Haul truck and everything. And they're moving into this, like, really nice-ass, like, house that's, like, overlooking this water or whatever. And it's, like, really nice and pretty. But we don't exactly know why they've moved. We just know that apparently, I guess, they're moving from Chicago, and they are moving to this place. As I stated before, this is actually Canada. This is all shot in. But I think we're supposed to believe that this is supposed to be, um, like, the Pacific Northwest. So, like, Washington State or something like that. We then see that uh, Lindsay is playing with a an alien and doing kind of an alien autopsy. I thought that was kind of fun. And apparently it's supposed to be kind of a subtle uh, reference to X-Files because, of course, David Nutter came from doing the X-Files. So I thought that was kind of fun. But then we have the next day, and I think there's also, before this, we do have a scene where Steve is in his room, and his dad's in there, too, and he's just, like, saying, like, are you nervous for your first day of school tomorrow? He's like, oh, no, no, I'm not worried about it, da-da-da. And then we see that Steve is unpacking some of his stuff, and we see that he has a picture of him and his brother... Um, who is technically, we don't know what's actually happened with him. We only get a little bit of a sliver of, because his brother is played by Ethan Embry, so his older brother, I guess. And so we see that they're together in a photo from the past, uh, but we don't actually know what's really happening with that. So the next day, Steve goes to school. So he goes to this fun Canadian school, probably with a bunch of Canadian extras and stuff like that. And we are introduced to English class. So we're in the English class where this is one of Steve's classes. And we see that this guy, Dickie Atkinson, comes in late uh, to class. And Dickie is kind of one of these, like, motorhead type of guys. Like, he is, yeah, he's just like a shit stir, and he's just like kind of a troublemaker or whatever. We then see that Dickie comes into class late, and we see that there are these, like, clean-cut kids that are like the popular kids which we will then find out are the blue ribbons and pretty much something about like dickie calls like the teacher a peckerhead or something i feel like this movie if again i'm it's 
has to be R, obviously, because they do swear in it and whatever. But I don't understand the idea of using the term peckerhead when you really could just say dickhead. But whatever. It's fine. Anyway, but Dickie, uh, because one of the blue ribbons kind of mouths off to Dickie and he gets to a fight with him. And so Dickie then gets sent to the principal's office and it's like a whole thing. So this is really set up that Dickie is kind of like this rebellious and kind of just like, uh, you know, takes no shit type of dude and whatever. And then we'll we'll find out what happens to Dickie. But anyway, so then we are then in the lunchroom with uh, Gavin and UV. So we are in the lunchroom where Steve is and then Gavin and UV is played by Chad Danella, the, the guy from Final Destination, who is put into all of this makeup to make him look like a pale guy. They introduce themselves to Steve, and so they kind of give a intro to all these different groups within the, the movie. Uh, so, like, we meet, like, the Motorheads, which I guess, like, Dickie's kind of a part of. Uh, the Motorheads, we see the Micro Geeks, we see the Skaters, and then we see our intro to the Blue ribbons and so it's funny because each one of these groups got a different light uh kind of tint to them uh which i thought was really funny and it's also kind of this interesting like little foreshadow to something like that kind of scene in a uh high school movie uh so something like a la mean girls or or um you know things like something like that but uh it's kind of funny that they had this in this movie but we get the intro to the blue ribbons because gavin was kind of giving a a lowdown on the other groups and talking about like you know this is their kind of music they prefer this is the drug they'd be this is the plans they would have on saturday night or whatever and the blue ribbons are pretty much seen as like these clean cut American kids who are, you know, just doing all the great for society or whatever. And that's who these people are. That is exactly what they're supposed to be. And so, you know, you can't really get in with them. Like, again, they're kind of the popular group of the school, if you will. So we have our fun little lunch scene and all that stuff. And this is kind of ingratiating Gavin and UV uh, to Steve in a way. And because Steve is just kind of a, he's a handsome guy, but like he isn't necessarily just like right with the blue ribbons right away. You know what I mean? Or anything like that. He's just kind of like, kind of floating around really. So I just thought that was interesting that Gavin is trying to get in his good graces, if anything. But yeah, so then you have dinner time at Steve's house. So we have like Lindsay and a friend of hers who joins for dinner. And then we have the rest of the family. And Lindsay talks about how like she had a brother or something like that. And this kind of then brings up this idea that like, okay, something happened to the brother. And so we end up finding out that this is actually where we find out because Steve says something about how he had a brother that died. And then that's kind of why they moved here in a way, kind of, sort of. And that's, like, hinted at at this scene. And it obviously makes the parents, the mom and dad, it makes them a little uncomfortable, of course. And then I think, like, Steve just kind of storms out because he's just kind of pissed off when it comes to this kind of thing. We then have a scene with Dickie, who is uh, driving out to this, like, dock or whatever. And he is going and picking up, like, car parts. Because, again, he's a motorhead guy. And so... He goes out to the dock 
rocks and he is surrounded by all of these blue ribbons and you can always tell the blue ribbons by like their letterman jackets that they have on and all of this and they really just surround him and they swarm him and pretty much what they do is i put in my notes question mark but i guess what they do is that they what they end up doing to him i don't think they end up beating him or anything um they really just end up overpowering him because then we'll get to it in a minute so then what ends up happening is after you have this scene which i'm sure was probably cut for some reason or was cut it around or something but steve then meets dr caldecott who is played by bruce greenwood he is like this doctor in the neighborhood who is i don't know he's just known as like this particular kind of guy um who's been really helping with like you know he's kind of a psychologist psychiatrist sort of guy i guess and so he's really helped some of the kids in the you know um he has helped some of the kids uh in the community uh especially with the blue ribbons and things like that and so then we get their introduction but steve isn't really feeling dr calicott he's just like he doesn't really trust these adults really um i don't believe uh because they're trying to they're trying to like show him that like hey we understand it's okay we end up finding out about a tragedy back home because they talk about that in the scene. And so this is where we get the idea that like, okay, like we know that the older brother died, I guess. And then we also know that it was something where they moved. So this is where you're getting all of this information. Okay. Because they're moving here because they moved because of that whole death. But then we have, um, after this scene, and again, it's showing that, like, Steve does not trust these people. He does not trust Dr. Caldecott. It's really kind of given to it here. We then have our intro to Rachel, who is um, Wood Creek's trash or whatever. Wood Ridge's Wood Creek's trash or whatever. Uh, was what the people call her. But anyway, uh, she's played by Katie Holmes, and she is a friend of Gavin and UV's. So she's supposed to be this kind of like alternative indie type chick. Now, listen, I love Katie Holmes just as much as anybody else does. Um, I'm glad you got a Scientology girl, and you know, you better get your money. But anyway, like, but you can't make me believe that like she's supposed to be some indie chick you, just because you put her in like some darker clothing or whatever. I watched some of the, the Dawson's Creek man okay listen i mm, girl okay anyway but I'll, I'll buy it i guess it's a movie whatever but anyway so we have our intro to rachel and so we see who she is and i think i think steve takes a little bit of a liking to her so you know that's that's fun we have the gang decides to go out and hang out um later that night and so because again steve is trying to find a groove and he's trying to find like you know a group to belong to so why not get in with these guys because they seem cool and so i think it's like uh gavin is trying to go and like buy beer or he's trying to get somebody to buy beer for him even though they're fully adults so like whatever but they're supposed to be teenagers of course but anyway so we see like gavin trying to accost people to like try and go buy them beer but nobody wants to really hear him Anyway, so then we see that uh, Chug, who is played, I believe, by A.J. Buckley, um, he's one of the Blue Ribbons, and he is inside of the supermarket that they are outside of. And so what ends up happening is, like, he seems to be interested in Rachel and you see that he's interested in her because he looks at her from outside of the window that he's looking through and what ends up happening is he's there and he looks at Rachel and it 
turns him on it like because he's like really interested in her and so this like sets something off in his brain where now he becomes this like angry upset person who i guess like this kid or this teenager got into his way or something and he ends up beating the fuck out of this guy i mean like throwing him around the fucking supermarket so much so that the people outside are like what the fuck is going on here like what is up with this and so after you see all of this and again he gets away with it because he's a blue ribbon they can do goddamn no wrong so you have this and so the gang as i'm referring to them as um so that is steve uv gavin and rachel i guess i'm considering them the gang or maybe if uv's not there they're still the gang to me but they hypothesize about what exactly is going on with these jocks so like they go and they drive out to some place and they talk about how like Gavin has this theory that, like, you know, something's going on in Cradle Bay with these jocks. And, like, you know, Rachel says, like, maybe it's a steroid thing. Like, they're all into it. And that's just, like, a side effect of it. But then Gavin has a more kind of a a deeper conspiracy idea of, like, what's exactly going on with this. After we get our little hypothesis session of, like, just trying to think of, like, what's going on with everything, you know, and just what could be going on, we see that Gavin, I guess it's the next day now, and Gavin is heading to the boiler room with uh, Steve in tow, and he's talking about Mary Jo, because Mary Jo was a friend of his and I guess has now gone missing. And so nobody seems to like uh, be thinking about her or like uh, whatever else. Right. And so anyway, what ends up happening is that um, they're talking about them, but they're going through the, the boiler room because apparently it's the best place you can like sneak a smoke or something like that. Um, so they're going in there for some reason, but then we end up getting, William Sadler! Yay! That's what I have in my notes. And this is uh, Dorian Newberry, who is the school janitor. Uh, William Sadler, for those who don't know, is an actor guy. He has been covered on this podcast before because he was actually death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Uh, And he's a really fun actor and I really love him. Anyway, so Mr. Newberry, who's I guess who I'll call him, he is trying to scare rats. We get that idea that he uses these high frequencies to like scare away rats or whatever. And so we see that he has these like radios that like help to do that. And that's what he's interested in doing. Then we end up getting um, that scene. So this is to set up like, you know, who exactly Mr. Newberry is and all of this. Um, but then we leave this scene to go to another scene where we see that Dickie from earlier, you know, that Metalhead guy, he is actually destroying his own car with the blue ribbons. So we see that they're outside. You got all these people around them and they are literally taking a sledgehammer to his car, which would be like a prized possession of his. So for example, when we see Dickie leaving school, for example, I think earlier we see him driving away in this car. And so now he's going and like literally destroying it because he has now become a blue ribbon we see that he is more clean cut now he doesn't look the same as he did before and he's been kind of brought into this group and so that's happening with that then we have um there is a scene where we have steve is goes to the yogurt shop so we have this little yogurt shop set up and so what ends up happening is he goes in there and then we see trent who was one of the blue ribbons and he actually takes steve 
who they call him Steven, um, which I don't think he exactly likes, but he is taken over and Trent intros the rest of the blue ribbons to him. So, you know, we meet like Randy and Lorna, we meet, um, you know, obviously like Andy and some of the other people as well, a chug, and then also Dickie, who again is the newest of the bunch. Anyway, so then, but then Gavin comes in because uh, Steve is kind of sitting with them a little bit, kind of, sort of, but he's kind of like side-eyeing it a little bit too. Anyway, but uh, Gavin comes in to the yogurt shop and he fucks with the blue ribbons because he's just like kind of making fun of them a little bit and he doesn't really take them all that seriously and they don't like him either. So they kind of like jab him back a little bit and all that. But what ends up happening is that Steve and Gavin, they end up leaving um, the yogurt shop because Steve makes it clear that he doesn't like the Blue Ribbons really either. They're trying to ingratiate him into the group and trying to be like, you know, hey, like you should become a Blue Ribbon or oh, hey, da 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 da. Because they're probably thinking like, oh, this like young, handsome guy, like da da da, let's bring him into our group. But he's not having any of it because he's kind of distrustful to a lot of different people. And anyway, so Steve and Gavin, they leave and Gavin. Gavin pretty much tells Steve outside the yogurt shop, he's telling him about what he thinks the Blue Ribbons are, pretty much, like, what's going on with them, like, listen, I think these people have been, like, you know, I don't know what's going on with them, but, like, they're being, you know, like, controlled, they're being, you know, this is what's happening to them, because he gives a picture, actually, he shows a picture to Steve of these blue ribbons actually being more rebellious. And this is where we find out that these blue ribbons used to actually be way more rebellious. They were partying more, drinking, doing stuff that they weren't supposed to do. Um, and they were his friends, you know what I mean? And so he even says that, like, that, you know, these are my friends. And, like, now they're this. And, you know, it just doesn't make any kind of sense on him at all. Apparently, also, as I was talking earlier, uh, there apparently is a scene where I don't know where it would have come up from. Maybe it's a little later in the movie. But apparently there is a scene. There's apparently a scene where uh, Gavin takes Steve to a morgue and he shows Mary Jo's body to him where I guess the tattoo that she had which we see from earlier because Andy says something about his her tattoo and how it's self-mutilation as a tattooed person I don't appreciate that but whatever it's fine but anyway so there's that but then also she's apparently been decapitated as well so we don't actually ever see this scene I would have to actually try to find it I guess maybe it's on somewhere I can go find it maybe I get the blu-ray or something but I kind of want to see what that scene is and and see where it would have fit in in this movie because maybe, it, I guess it would have had to at some point. But anyway, so then we have, um, back to our plot summary. But anyway, so Gavin and Steve, they, what they end up doing is they spy on this Blue Ribbon meeting. And this is a meeting where all of the parents of the Blue Ribbons, I guess they come together. And this m- meeting is uh, led by Dr. Caldecott and... They're talking just about, like, you know, what are the Blue Ribbons going to do? Like, what are the plans that they're going to do this month or whatever they're doing, right? And so one of the parents, like, says, you know, hey, 
as much as we love that Andy has improved with this, like he just seems a lot different. And then Caldecott is talking about how like something or other, he's just trying to explain away what's exactly going on with them. Like if these kids seem sort of different or what's going on with them, you know, um, he's explaining it away. This is also the scene where we actually are supposed to have a longer scene of Caldecott talking about his daughter in the movie. Cause we find out that he actually has a daughter, but we actually don't find that out in this movie right away. But in the scene, we were supposed to find that out. But again, I guess, uh, then again, uh, this shit got cut. So we didn't know that. But yes, so this is where we're supposed to find that out. But what ends up happening is that Gavin finds out that, like, his parents have signed him up for the Blue Ribbons, pretty much. Because they end up uh, talking about like who's going to be the next person to be brought in. And so they talk about like the profile of this kid who's going to be brought into that and everything like that. And we end up finding out that Gavin's parents are there. And he sees his parents. He's like, oh shit, my parents signed me up for this program. And so that's what ends up happening. So Gavin freaks the fuck out. So yeah, Gavin realizes that his parents have signed him up for this they end up what ends up happening is they leave the they leave spying on the meeting and they go to like this like shorefront that they're at and steve and gavin are having a moment (laughs) because they're trying to be like you know okay well maybe you know maybe you're just maybe it's just not really anything more than just like these kids getting together and just doing things to kind of better the community or whatever maybe that's what this is but gavin is just like no this is way more sinister this is way worse like and you know what like i'm actually going to because he then shows he's planning on killing all of the adults involved like he literally shows steve that he has a gun and he literally is planning to like he's gonna smoke him you know that's what he says and so like i also think it's interesting because i feel like we get the idea that steve and i guess to a point uv because we actually find out that uv does sell weed i guess but anyway so like we are to, to expect that, like, okay, so, especially Gavin, I guess, with Gavin and UV, but Gavin especially, he, he is this kind of stoner kid, like, he very much is supposed to be that kind of archetype, but then I kind of wonder, like, is he doing these drugs to, like, kind of numb something in him because of the fact that this is all happening around him, and, like, he's using these drugs to kind of make himself something different than what his friends have turned into i always kind of wondered that a little bit as well um because again it's to be assumed that from what gavin says these people who were the blue ribbons used to be his friends and then they got turned into these like perfect automatons you know what i mean so it's like i just always thought it was interesting like why does he does he use drugs to kind of like uh dull that sensation or dull the the pain that he feels or the dulls you know or numbs the pain or something like that or numbs something but anyway so i just thought that was always really interesting but of course like uh steve is like no you're not gonna fucking kill these people i'm taking this gun like don't even fucking try it like you know all this And so this is where Gavin is all like, you know, don't leave me alone out here. Like, you know, I thought I could trust you, all this. But then what ends up happening is Gavin just like walks home and he just like walks in the middle of the night back home, I guess, uh, because he and Steve go on their separate ways. So then we have our next day at school 
and people are like all surprised and they're looking around because we see that Gavin, we see actually someone's feet, but then we find out it's Gavin and he has come to school and he's a new dude because he is now clean cut. He has different hair. He looks very nice and handsome. Nick Stahl's a very, um, uh, he looks very attractive in this this um, this role uh, when he's a lot more cleaned up. Even beforehand, he still was a pretty cute guy. But anyway, so he's a new ass dude, though. Okay, and so anyway, so we have this, and even like Rachel's like, you know, what the fuck is going on here, Gavin? Like, what are you doing? And so of course, like he kind of forgets about his old friends and all this. What ends up happening is that a fight breaks out in the lunchroom. Uh, and so what ends up happening is Steve gets beaten up by this. Or Steve is trying to talk to, like, Gavin, but uh, the Blue Ribbons are not letting him or anything like that. And then he's, like, not taking no for answer, you know? So, like, Steve's trying to get in there, but then he ends up getting beaten up. And then, like, Rachel's trying to get in there a little bit, too. Like, you know, it's just not great. And then, again, Steve ends up getting the ship kicked out of it in a way so then we have our next scene and this is uh the scene where steve uh ends up going to the boiler room because he hates lunch and he doesn't feel uh very much he doesn't feel very uh included obviously uh so him and mr newberry are in the boiler room he says what are you doing here like you know you're not supposed to be here uh and all this in his like wonderful accent he's doing and so like you know we see this connection or we see this relationship between steve and mr newberry in a way um where we have that and steve even sees like a he sees a copy of slaughterhouse five by kirk vonnegut in the pants pocket of mr newberry and that is to kind of signify that like oh it's all an act isn't it like you know you're not really because this up to this point mr newberry is kind of seen as like this like janitor guy he's like a maintenance guy he is thought to be of low intelligence in a way and and whatever but he ends up but this is where where steve is all like it's all an act isn't it like it's all bullshit isn't it like you know you're just doing this to whatever and we end up finding out that in fact actually it is an act because even mr newberry comes out and says you know it's funny how people just ignore you when they think that you're not smart or whatever and so you put this kind of act on like you can get away with quite a bit where people will just literally ignore you um which i thought was very interesting uh this is i think also supposed to be where there was that longer scene where we find out what actually happened to like uh the what actually happened in the town um which kind of made this like a different thing so as i stated before this is supposed to be a scene where mr newberry talks about how like three years ago there was this these kids got drunk and they drug drove you know and they ended up killing this woman and her kid by accident and then they died as well and so because of this you know things started to change around cradle bay ever since caldecott came and kind of we're trying to really help these rebellious teens and all that kind of stuff but again because MGM wanted all these cuts. That's why we don't have it. But anyway, so pretty much what we find out is that Mr. Newberry has been putting on a whole act this whole time. And we do see that he's actually a smarter man than he is led on to be. And then also he's aware of what's kind of going on. He's aware of more than what we have seen at this point. Then you have Steve, who um, at this point now, uh, 
we are like at night and he is walking through the woods and he's being pursued by these blue ribbons. And so he is like, you know, being pursued by them. And it's like just very odd. Like, you know, they're definitely kind of playing on his, um, you know, kind of just like, yeah, he's just like scared because he's just like, oh my God, like they're coming after me. They're like surrounding me. Anyway, so he ends up coming home. Steve ends up coming home to his house. And Lorna is there, who's one of the Blue Ribbon ladies. And he's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, I was helping to tutor Lindsay, your sister, in algebra. Like, she's a very special girl. And so then he's like, okay, you, you got to go home. Like, you got you to gotta leave. And she's like, oh, well, you know, can I at least use your bathroom? And he's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Anyway, so then we end up seeing that Steve is at home and then Lorna is using the bathroom, like washing her hands or whatever. And so she ends up looking at him and it's the same kind of thing with Chug earlier where we have this kind of like red robot ass, like Terminator ass looking, you know, predator ass looking. I don't know. Like, um, kind of like kind of overlay and like you see this and you see that, uh, there's this red eye that Lorna has and like something's going on with it and you start to see that I guess she's getting turned on by Steve because she thinks that he is attractive and she pretty much starts to I guess malfunction in a way because you start seeing that she's not acting like her normal self normally she's very reserved she's very much prim and proper and now she decides she is going to put it all out there on the table and she literally like unbuttons her blouse where you do see her titties you see her boobs Again, this is supposed to be a teenager, so I feel a little weird about this, but okay, whatever. So you see that like she is like pretty much throwing it at Steve. She's like wanting him real bad, and he doesn't want it. He's just like, okay, you need to go. Like, you know, he's just like kind of like, oh God, this is weird. And then you end up seeing that she's realizing what she's doing, and she is like, this is wrong. It's bad. It's wrong. And the fact that this actress has really only been in this movie and never was really in anything else, I think is a shame because I think she actually did a really good job with this role personally. But, you know, things happen. But we see that this very much is kind of a, um, I feel like this, this scene is a little bit of a reference to the scene in, um, Stepford Wives. If you've seen the original Stepford Wives, you would know that, I guess, spoiler, but, uh, Bobby, who is Joanna's friend in this movie, ends up getting turned into a robot. And so she has this whole scene where Joanna goes to Bob's, Bobby's house and sees her there and like stabs her or whatever is what happens because she realizes what's that. Joanna actually realizes what's going on in Stepford and she realizes that um, Bobby has been turned into a, uh, a robot. And so we see that Bobby is like, you know, malfunctioning or whatever and all this like, you know, and she sees what's actually going on. And this just reminded me of that a little bit because like literally like Lorna like hits her head on the mirror and like she's bleeding out of her head. And then she's like, I, I have to go. I have a big physics test tomorrow. So she doesn't even realize what's gone on and what's transpired. And so like literally Steve is all like, what the actual fuck? Like, okay. And Steve is starting to wonder like what exactly is going on? Because he even saw like the eye with Lorna he sees it and he's just like wait what the fuck was that like what is this and again it's just 
he doesn't realize what's he doesn't exactly realize what's going on but like he's just like has the suspicions of like okay there is something going on with these kids like i don't know what the hell is going i don't know what is going but it sums up so we end up finding out actually this is where we really find because we are brought in to a surgeon and we see another surgeon who happens to be our boy dr caldecott And we find out that pretty much the Blue Ribbons are being mind-controlled and brainwashed by Caldecott. So this is where we kind of get that first inkling of it, because he's obviously there. He, they talk about Lorna and, like, how she needs to get her chip recalibrated and, like, all this stuff. And this is what we're going to do and blah, blah, blah. Because, again, this this happens. So this is our our first bit of understanding that Caldecott really is the villain in this, this movie. Um, I'm sure there's more development of this character in some way, shape, or form. But guess what? We don't have it. But anyway, it's fine. But uh, So then we have the next scene, which we have Rachel and Chug, who are in the boiler room. So Rachel comes into the boiler room, and then Chug kind of comes after her. She's hiding at first, and Chug's in there and because we see that he's interested in her, and he's trying to, like, you know, he is trying to, like get with her pretty much so she like comes out of hiding and she's like comes out because he's like you know rachel i know you're in here like you know you can come out and she comes out and he's all like you know hey look like you know i just want to know like will you go out with me and rachel's all like you're kidding right and she's just like no i will not go out with you and then of course he yells he's just like why not and that's always just a crazy scene. But he like, yells at her and she's just like, I'm not interested in you like that, like at all. You're, I would not be interested in you at all. Like you are like pieces of shit and like maggots. Like it's not, you know, I'm not interested in you. But then he's like, he like kind of overpowers her a little bit and he's trying to like kind of sexually assault her really like he pins her up against like this thing in the boiler room and he's like trying to actually like assault her but then what ends up happening though is that somebody who i wonder who turns on this like a uh, high frequency radio where it's this pitch high pitched noise that starts to make that starts to make chug malfunction it allows rachel to be able to then get away and for chug to have that um i wonder who could have done that but uh our good old mr newberry uh but we do see that he's kind of the one who had that but then of course chug has to go and like he has to go and break the radio and all this and so you know he ends up doing that and then of course we have like the casual use of the r word uh, in this movie as well which is not always the best but you know it is what it is this is 1998 but uh because they do see again they see mr newberry as kind of this guy of lower intelligence so they call him the r word when really he is not at all but but yeah so we have that then we have steven Lindsay. they're walking um up the road to their house and the blue ribbons drive by their house as well because again they're intimidating steve at this point we see that Lindsay has like this blue ribbon around her wrist because she got it at school but he's wondering like you know where did you get this from like why do you have this anyway so then we see that rachel and steve they get together because i think steve even calls rachel or he goes to her house or something like that and they end up talking about like hey we need to talk and she's like yeah i think you need to see something and so we see that they watch a video uh from gavin from before he had changed to where he's giving it this information about like here is 
what I know about Caldecott. Here's what you need to know about this, that, and the third. Like, he's pretty much giving all this information that he has been thinking about of what's actually been happening in Cradle Bay. And he is putting this out on video and he's then gave it to Rachel, I guess, or something, um, so that after he got turned, all of his information uh, that is out there is able to now be taken by these friends of his, pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much what he's talking about. He's what's going on. He gives some insight into what's going on. And so what they end up finding out, um, because Rachel did her 1998 research, and they found out that Caldecott actually worked at a mental hospital. He did, like, surgery, like... Um, and things like that, he had worked in a mental institution. And so in this situation, they decide they're going to go pay a little visit. So they get on the late night ferry and they decide to go and visit the in- mental institution of where uh, Dr. Calicott used to work. So they end up finding that out. In the meantime, while they're on the ferry, uh, I guess this is like, the f- I guess it's not late at night, but um, <laughs> they get on the ferry to go over to, to visit this place. And this is where we actually find out about Steve's older brother, because he actually talks about it a little bit more, about what exactly happened. But here is the thing. I'm going to bring it back. So we find out uh, in this cut that I guess Steve's older brother, Alan, played by Ethan Embry, is supposed to have been somebody who he looks up to a lot, but he was always just so sad. And what ended up happening is that he died of suicide. Right? Like, that's kind of the the picture we get. But we end up, actually, from when you look at the the cut of the movie that got cut, um, we find out that, actually, what really happened, I think, was that that did happen, but also, I believe that Alan also killed his girlfriend and then shot himself or something. I don't exactly know, because I don't know what the fucking cut is. But... There's a little bit more to the story than just Alan, you know, killed himself and that's why we moved or whatever. It's a little bit deeper than than just that. But then that's where we find out how they pretty much moved and why they were coming to Cradle Bay in the first place. Anyway, so then we have Steve and Rachel. They explore the mental hospital. So they just like sneak up in there and they're just like going around. So we see a couple of the patients that are there. So like the um they end up going to like this like um kind of open day room if you will where you have these people who are mentally ill. Like one guy's like brushing his teeth a bunch and then there's like, this other girl who's doing some other stuff or whatever. I don't know. You see this all going on and then you see that um Rachel and Steve, they end up going into this room with this young girl who just keeps repeating over and over again something about the musical little something or others. And she's just repeating the same thing over and over again. And they start to, the patients all are starting to freak out from this girl saying this stuff. And they are like ganging up on the window of like the room that she's like in and also where like Rachel and Steve are at. And this then prompts the security to then come in and like start to try to see what's going on. And so then you end up having that like, you know, they're trying to shut the girl up. And so they're just like, shut up. Like, what are you doing? And so we see that then Rachel just hits the girl. She just punches her. And so we end up finding out, though, that this girl that uh, Rachel literally just decked in the face is actually Caldecott's daughter. Um, So this is where we find this out. But guess what? We didn't know that earlier. So we see that. But that's what we find out is that Caldecott had his own daughter institutionalized. 
because of whatever reason, probably because she just knew the truth of what was actually going on and he wanted to put her away so nobody would actually hear the truth or something like that. And then I just have in my notes, fuck yes, flagpole Sitta, because pretty much uh, at this point, Rachel and Steve have to go and like uh, deuce out of this place. And so they just run out and they're running out to uh, Henry Danger's Flagpole Sitta, which is a great song. And it was in the um, trailer of this movie and has also been used uh, to good effect in the movie from Netflix, Do Revenge, which I will talk about how I really like that movie and it's a great movie. And they use Flagpole Sitta really well in it. But anyway, so they run the hell out of the mental institution and we see that Rachel and Steve, they're driving away. So they're driving and they're just like, let's get the fuck out of here. So they stop at a gas station because, again, they're having to get back on the ferry to like try to go back home. Um, And the police, uh, which I think is uh, Sheriff Cox or whatever, he is there and he ends up confronting Steve and Rachel. So, of course, like, you know, he's just like, oh, you passed out after curfew. Like, you know, you're out past out you're out past curfew like what are you doing and they're like well studying and they're like well, where are your books and like all this and so of course intimidating you know a cab but anyway so <laughs> we see that mr newberry is like driving around in his like piece of shit car that he has and so he comes up to kind of distract a little bit like he seems to kind of be in on what's going on a little bit mr newberry comes up and again so what happens is that the sheriff like ends up taking Rachel and Steve and he's about to like put them in the back of his car, right? Like he's about to like, again, a cab. So like, he's about to throw them in the back of his car, like police car and do whatever the fuck. Right. But then Mr. Newberry is all like really a cab. And he's like, fuck the police. And he literally knocks the sheriff out to give uh, Rachel and Steve a chance to escape. So this then gives Rachel and Steve the chance to escape out in the car. I just want you all to know that my cat is right here, uh, right next to my microphone, and she looks very cute. Um, and she's just being really adorable. But anyway, so then we um, we see that Steve comes back to his house, um, and he's trying to escape with Lindsay. So, like, he's deciding, hey, like, I'm leaving. Like, we're, I'm going back to Chicago with Lindsay. Like, I need to get her out of here because he is her big brother. And anyway, so then Steve almost gets turned because the parents have called in Caldecott um, to kind of see what he can do to, like, help. And, you know, they're enrolling him in the program to, like, help with this. And then this is where you get the scene of, like, you know, we're just trying to do what's best for you. And he's like, you know, what about what I want and all this? Um, And again, I I will always bring it back to the fact that there was scenes that were cut out of this. And so... What ended up happening was that the mother actually found the gun from earlier where Gavin had it and Steve, I guess, took it. And so that's what kind of prompted her to like call Dr. Caldecott and try to see what he could do to help. So again, this kind of comes out of nowhere in the theatrical cut, but like in the actual director's cut, you actually do get a little bit of that background with that. But anyway, so then you see that he almost gets turned because they're about to like take him, but he's able to get out though. Steve is able to escape. Um, I don't think Lindsay gets to really, she kind of does, but like, you know, he has to kind of go out on his own. Steve does. And so the blue ribbons decide to attack him pretty much is what happens. 
but they just kind of swarm him and they really are just kind of like they just overpower him at this point um because yeah why not now i will say that for stepford wives this doesn't exactly happen with the wives themselves because the wives are already turned into robots it's more the men in the the society of that movie and the the community who are kind of in on it obviously so you know that's a whole thing I think I've already said it on this podcast, but I hated Don't Worry Darling, and I I think it's weird that Olivia Wilde never said that it was inspired by the stuff for wives or anything like that, because it very much was. Anyway, let me get off my soapbox there. But anyway, so we see that Steve is taken, and he is, like, being led uh, on a gurney. He's being pushed into, like, this fucking... I don't even know, like some underground lair, I guess, um, where he is um, going to get turned. Um, so this is the place from earlier where I guess Lorna had to go after she malfunctioned. And so um, he's in the same place. Rachel's also there. They also uh, took her and they're deciding they're also going to like, you know, turn her into a good girl and they're going to turn um, Steve into a good boy. Anyway, so then what ends up happening is that in the middle of him being put on this chair, which apparently is supposed to be a uh, reference to Total Recall, I guess, Steve is like strapped to this chair and his like face is strapped in and they're about to put this light on him and like there's just all this drama going on, right? And what ends up happening is that Steve is able to get his arm or something he's able to like break out and actually like overpower the scientist to be able to like you know um kind of do what he needs to do to, to get out and then he also um takes rachel with him he he goes over to her and he's able to break her out as well because that's his love and he loves her but anyway so then um they're escaping together and she's kind of like you know she's kind of tired and she's just like been overpowered or whatever and so we do see that there's that going on and then we also see that rachel and steve they're leaving but then chug stops them because again he's talking about like that's my girl steve that's my girl steven you know and of course she's not his girl and all of this but then what ends up happening is they're fighting chug and they're overpowering him and they're able to beat him up to be like you know fuck you guys like you know we're getting out of here uh, and all of that. So, and we're coming up near the end of the movie at this point by now, but we do see that uh, they are able to get out of, I guess it was the mental institution or wherever the fuck they were at. <laughs> and we see that UV and Lindsay have arrived uh, in the car together and they are, they've arrived and they're taking everyone together. So it's UV, Lindsay, Steve, and Rachel, and they're all leaving and the gang is escaping, but then we have a blue ribbons roadblock. So, like, literally the blue ribbons are, like, literally blocking off the road so where they can't escape. And they're like, oh, no, fuck, 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 what do we do? But then what ends up happening is, like, so they stop their car. But then Mr. Newberry, our savior, he is driving up in his car and he is uh, coming over. And pretty much what he does is he, like, comes up the road and he ends up turning, like, a sharp left or something like that and he pretty much fucks their shit up and the way he fucks their shit up is that he has all of these high frequency radios like we were seeing earlier and he has them set to where he is pretty much has them set to where it will 
overpower the blue ribbons because they are sensitive to these high frequency um, sounds or whatever. And so that all happens and he comes and fucks their shit up to where he gets to kind of overpower them. I think we also do see Steve uh, driving on a motorcycle at some point as well. That happens. But this is where we get the scene where Steve comes to Mr. Newberry and he's there with the car and all this. And we find out that Mr. Newberry actually has been stabbed, I guess, because we see the wound uh, on his stomach and we see that he is deciding to pretty much sacrifice himself uh, because he lures the... The other thing, too, is that he lures the blue ribbons in with, like, you know, the sound or whatever, and he's, like, had them get on his car and all this stuff to, like, kind of overpower him. But even Steve says something about, like, well, what if they can be helped? And he's like, nobody can be helped in this town, and not even me. And that's when we find out he got stabbed. So this is where we have our... (laughs) the iconic line before he dies but we have mr newberry like his car and all of these blue ribbons uh kids are on it and he's like hey teacher leave those kids alone and he like literally drives his car with these blue ribbons and all them off the cliff and he dies with them as well so he like sacrifices himself and then we see that caldecott's there caldecott is all like you know science is god and all of this and so steve and caldecott they're fighting on the cliffside um because again caldecott is the villain of this movie and you know steve has to fight him or whatever because he's left the other three to get on the ferry without him pretty much at this point um and he's like go meet me there and i'll you know i'll meet you there like you know get on there and, and i'll be there but then we see that uh steve <laughs> he says something because like i think he gets on a ledge of this and caldecott like grabs his foot or something and he just says something about like be the ball like and then he like kicks caldecott and literally kicks caldecott off the cliffside and like literally caldecott falls off the cliff and, and dies so that's how we have uh, the death of Caldecott and the death of the Blue Ribbons. And they all just die of just getting off the cliffside. Anyway, so then Steve ends up getting on his motorcycle that he has acquired. And he ends up going on the ferry and he like gets on there. And Rachel and Steve are on the ferry together and they kiss. Okay. And they kiss. So we see that Rachel and Steve are there and then UV and Lindsay are there. And I guess the uh, assumption is that they can't stay in Cradle Bay and I guess they'll just have to go somewhere else. They're just going to have to make a new life for themselves some other place, I guess. When the original ending of this movie was actually, so literally, like, Steve does come to the ferry and all of this, but then Gavin is actually there, and he has a gun. And so the gun, he is, like, pointing it at them, and he's pretty much saying, like, you know, I'm going to, like, kill you because, you know, I... All of these people are now dead. Like, I, these were my friends, you know, and like, I don't want to be a blue ribbon, but I don't know what else I can do and all this kind of stuff. And he's pretty much going to shoot like literally Steve um, because he's brought these guys down pretty much. And what ends up happening is that when he's about to shoot Steve, what ends up happening is that UV ends up shooting Gavin. And so then Gavin's taken down. And Gavin then comes kind of back to his normal self. And then pretty much what happens is that Gavin just dies at the end of this movie. And you literally have the uh, actual end of the movie is literally uh, Steve and Rachel 
who they just are kind of like hugging one another. Like, you know, Rachel is like in Steve's like chest and just like, you know, Oh God. And then they have like the beginning music, like the dun dun, you know, and all that. And they have that. So that's the original ending of this movie, the way more dark ending. So the end of our movie in the theatrical cut is that, we are transported to this classroom of kids that are kind of like supposed to be kind of like uh, rowdy or like something like that, you know, and they're supposed to be like, you know, oh, they need to be like, they need to learn manners. They need to learn this or whatever. And uh, the teacher ends up saying like they're on their like uh, they have like their music in and they're like throwing things like whatever. And the teacher's all like, hey, you have a new student teacher today. Like, you know, so give him some sort of respect like you didn't do the last one and be like, you know, there he is. Like, you know, this is this is Gavin Strick. And we end up finding out that Gavin is a student teacher and he's now going to be brainwashing the youths. So that is uh, that is where we end our movie on. And so that is the end of Disturbing Behavior. So as we wrap up on this episode about this movie, Disturbing Behavior, I do just want to like say that I'm very glad that I have found this movie. I think it's something where I can definitely enjoy it for what it is. Um, it ended up becoming uh, a movie that... I think, you know, does get kind of lumped in with something like the faculty, where I think people think that the faculty is a little bit better. I kind of agree with them. I do think the faculty is just a little bit of a better movie, but, you know, no tea. But, like, it's just... But I do see these movies as kind of a good double feature, especially, so definitely watch them um, and, you know, watch them together for sure. But I, I do like this movie. I, I see the, the influence from something like The Stepford Wives, and I do think that... I would love to see a director's cut of this film and I would love to see what David Nutter really made happen and, you know, what he got to direct. And I would love to see the story in full. Uh, I would really like that. So, but I do think this movie, like for the flaws that it has, I do think that it, it is a really interesting kind of work on, you know, what it's like to be a teenager and kind of the the politics that come along with it. And then also conformity and brainwashing and things like that. I, I really do think it's a very interesting piece of that. And it, it will have that in here no matter what. I think that's the legacy this movie kind of has is that it is this kind of teen film that, you know, teen horror film, if anything. And, and I think that's what it'll hopefully have a legacy for. And, and again, I think it also has the legacy of just being a movie that really got cut to shit and it really affected the movie in a way negatively. Um, and then MGM thinking like, Oh no, we got bad reviews. I wonder how that happened. You know, you did, but anyway, so Right now, though, you can um, stream this on HBO Max. It's been on there for the longest fucking time. That and the faculty are actually on HBO Max, so you can watch them both together. Um, so that's really fun. And there is a there is a Scream Factory Blu-ray of this. I do kind of want to get it. Apparently, a lot of the information is really just the same stuff you probably could get from the DVD. But again, that still includes some of the other scenes that are in there, the other alternative ending that's there, you know, things like that. So I think there's also like a commentary on here as well. So that's kind of cool. But I would definitely say just my takeaway from it is that uh, Disturbing Behavior is definitely, I think, worth a watch. It's not as bad as I think some people may think it out to be or may make it seem to be. Um, and I definitely think that if you are a fan of horror, uh, especially kind of teen horror of the 90s or something like that, I think this is definitely worth a watch. And if you haven't already seen it, um, definitely give it a watch. And 
And yeah, who doesn't love a good James Marsden, Katie Holmes film? Like, why not? You know, it's fun to see little baby, baby actors um, of those, those caliber. But yeah. uh, So yes, do yourself a favor and watch yourself some disturbing behavior. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cultcinemacircle and on Twitter at cultcinemacircle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there if they want. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that I watch, I write little stupid reviews about them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 2006's John Tucker Must Die. After discovering they are all dating the same guy, three popular students from different cliques band together for revenge, so they enlist the help of a new gal in town and conspire to break the jerk's heart while destroying his reputation. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, and remember, don't worry about the snakes in your garden when you got spiders in your bed. Take care. Bye.